Hello from your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Nicole. I'm Rachel. And I'm Alan. Hi, Alan. Oh, I, this is the first time that I've done the talking part of the episode. <laughs> so, um, yes, well, uh, Rachel and Nicole have invited me to talk to you today, uh, dear listener, mm-hmm. about um, something that's very uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, well, we didn't invite you to speak about something in particular because we don't know what it is yet. <laughs> right. Well, that's true, because you don't know... <laughs> You don't know what I'm about to talk about, but I mm. will tell you that this episode did begin with one of you personally insulting me. Oh, what? That's yes. exciting. Which you, one? Yes. Well, which of you do you think did it? Probably me. me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was, Unclear. It could be either of us. It, it was Nicole. <laughs> Not okay. makes sense. Okay. Fantastic. Um, it, it was indeed Nicole. Do you know, have any idea what you said to me that was a, a personal affront to my my values this feels like a trap um <laughs> the anything under 200 grams doesn't matter <laughs> no no, no uh, the opposite over, over. The, over. Yeah. um you know what that while that's a very weird take that you have that <laughs> animals larger than 200 grams aren't important um no that's not what this is about and okay. we'll, we'll talk about that another time um this this happened um last last year a few months ago oh, oh my wow we were oh, okay we were uh we were sitting at a table i was describing to you a an experience that i'd had uh, in an aquarium where I feel like I really connected with a pygmy marmoset. Oh. And then oh, you no. said primates are terrible. Awful. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I then sent you a video later of a pygmy marmoset, uh-huh. adorable, small enough to grasp onto a plasticware knife. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. You responded with one word. Hideous. Hideous. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> All right. So, in light of that, I all you know realized that the best biome hasn't really had any episodes that talk about primates yet. That's true. Um, it's for a reason. Yeah, I'm noticing <laughs> no, that. <it's> not. <laughs> <laughs> they may be Nicole's uh, least favorite taxa, but um, you know what? They uh, they're um, fascinating, and uh, they merit some discussion, um, especially in the context of the best biome. Um, Because I know you probably think of like, you know, we obviously very strongly associate primates with uh, rainforest environments, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's uh, true for a lot of them. But uh, there are a number of very interesting uh, grasslands dwelling species out there that we're going to that we're going to get into today. Now, um, before we do that, though, since this is the first time we've discussed uh, primates as the main topic of an episode... To break out of your, you know, very obvious bias for things like rodents and birds, mm-hmm. um, I think we we should do just a little bit of an overview of primates. Oh, in the form of some trivia for you guys. Oh God! <laughs> Yay! Yes. yes. <laughs> Let's go. My goal is to destroy Nicole. <laughs> yeah. You will it's as just... <laughs> as it should be. So, and you know, listener, feel free to chime in. Um, <laughs> You probably do know uh, more about primates than um, someone who actively despises them. (laughs) So let's find out. Okay. How many primate species do you think are in 
this planet? The the entire planet? How many do you think live on planet Earth? I'll I'll take an answer Can... within the nearest fifty. Oh, twenty seven. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Within the nearest 50? Within the nearest 50. Okay, that makes me think there's not very many. It means there's more than 50. Unless you interpret it like Rachel did. I, d- I guess the first 50 is my guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm 50 or go less. More than that. <laughs> Wait, are. What things are primates? I'm oh, trying to think. A um, lot. Like marmosets obviously are primates. I'm going to go 200. Are lemurs primates? 200 is closer. What? Um 100 100. The question it, it's it, <laughs> you're you're answer. both you're both you're both low. Uh there's oh. yeah, there's at least 378. Okay. Well, okay. I, okay. Um there could be as many depending on, you know, lumping splitting kind of issues. Um there could be as many as 500. Um and when you incorporate subspecies there is more than 700. Okay. So um, yeah, they're a pretty large and diverse uh, family. Rachel has her hand raised. What is it, Rachel? I would like to know if lemurs are primates. That is uh, a great question. And yes, they are, which brings us <laughs> okay, okay yeah. to our second question here. No, no. Is that this family? Okay. Or, or rather, the order. Um, the order of primates, it's divided into two big like chunks, right? Okay. 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 You've got what are called strepsirene, and you have haplorine primates do you know what anatomical feature that division is made on thumbs it's a great guess i was gonna guess yeah something with feet but okay it might be it would probably be easier if you were looking at the word but the rene or rhine part of it r-h-i-n nose the noses Mm. yeah so you're they divide into the wet nosed and the dry nosed primates this is why i don't (laughs) like primates Right, so what? yeah, so it's disgusting. You, you talked about crayfish noses for a while, but they're cute. <laughs> oh God. Okay, so yeah, you've got wet-nosed and dry-nosed or simple-nosed primates. Um, the uh, did you the, say simple-nosed? Yeah, haplorine, like you know, like haploid. It would mean they have half, half a nose. It mean well, no, it just means simple, right? So like a um, a strepsirene <laughs> primate, a strepsirene primate has a. Uh, a snout that ends in like um like a rhinarium okay so like a dog or a cat has that like little wet moist part that they boop you with <laughs> you really got to use simple words man i don't know <laughs> I, I appreciate I know. you then explaining after we're doing a we're little we're doing a little vocabulary it's <laughs> yes, okay it's good but yeah so you've got so you know you have uh some primates have snoots like a dog or a cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 is that a snoots. rhinocene that would that what that would you? be the strepsirene the wet-nosed ones so those okay, are like yeah. that would include lemurs okay um of which there are many uh if you can kind of picture a lemur like you can see like it does have kind of like a little dog they have nose a snout. On yeah. yeah a little mm-hmm. snoot um the other ones would be just simple noser which are you know typically um us yeah us right would be a good example okay um we don't have anything weird going on nose wise what was that word you used that was like rhinocline or something like that <laughs> rhinocline <laughs> <laughs> Wait, i've already forgotten what it, what it was my ADHD is out of control this week, man. <laughs> You're doing great. You know, and there's there's another nose question that's coming up here. So <laughs> wait, no, so wait, tell me you, the word. So you've got strepsirine that's and a, haplorine. Those are groups, yeah. What's the name of the snout chamber? Rhinarium. Rhinarium. <laughs> I don't like that. It sounds like a greenhouse inside your nose. It does. And I there mean, kind of is, is a greenhouse inside <laughs> oh, your nose. No. There's a lot of yeah, moisture and <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. So you could divide those haploride primates into two further groups, uh-huh. also based on nose stuff. You get caterine and platyrine. Okay. Oh, no. This uh, would be the caterines have nostrils that point downward. The platyrides have nostrils that point outwards. Disgusting. I just find this fascinating. This is how, like, of all the things there are to observe about primates, this is, like, the main thing that we're dividing them up based on um, is the nose. So, like, you know, like a tamarind, okay, would have nostrils that go boop out. Uh, a human would have nostrils that point down, obviously. Yes, Rachel. First of all, I don't think I've ever looked at a primate's nose and wondered which way their nostrils were pointing. Mm-hmm. Second of all, I mm-hmm. forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> That is okay. <laughs> so <laughs> let's dispense with some of the scientific uh, terminology here, um, because you can divide um, you can divide a number of these primates into two even smaller divisions. Okay. <laughs> oh, I remember what I was going to ask. What were you going to ask? Have these divisions been backed up by DNA? Ooh. Oh, by like uh, uh, by like a by genetic analyses. phylogeny that kind yeah. of thing. Like, um, you know what? Yeah, and and that's why there is um a lot of confusion in terms of how many primate species there are. Why is it between 370 to 500, right? Because there, there's a lot yeah. of confusion. Um, and uh, that, that confusion is not isolated to um, any one primate group, it seems like. It seems like this, this happens all over the place with these animals, um, including in the ones that we're going to very specifically talk about today. Okay. We're not there yet, though. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to divide this into New World and Old World monkeys. You probably heard about these back in biology class, right? Yeah. These are two big groups. Okay. Could you give me an example of a New World and an Old World monkey? Spider monkeys are a New World monkey. Spider monkeys are a New World monkey. Very good. And uh, Nicole, could, do you know of an Old World monkey? You can do it, man. I believe in you. I can only think of apes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're they're closely more closely related to old world monkeys, but ooh, I have an idea. Ooh, what do you got, Rachel? Wait, are we supposed to you let Nicole say, try? Well, you no, did say you go. wanted to destroy Nicole, so uh, lemurs. Uh, lemurs. Would... They're not a monkey. They're a more they're a more primitive primate. They're okay, in okay, that. Okay. They're yeah. Um, Howler monkeys. Uh, howler monkeys. Nope, those are would, in South America. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So wow. something, something. I can't from think Africa. of a single monkey from Africa. <laughs> I know. I just went to the Bone Museum too, and there were Aww. so many primates there that I looked at, and How I was about, like, oh. uh, "What was? What was?" Oh, Rafiki? there's some Asian ones. Are uh, they monkeys? Mm-hmm. Why don't I can't think of <laughs> what they're called? Guys, this is why we had to talk about primates <laughs> on the podcast. Okay. You are proving your point really well, Alan. <laughs> um. What about mandrakes? Mandrills. Mandrills. Yes, mandrills. Mandrills would be an example of an old world monkey. Yes, very good. What is a mandrake? Isn't a mandrake like a plant? plant? (laughs) Or is it like a mythological thing? You're right, you're right. I feel like that that feels like an alchemical ingredient or something. (laughs) I don't know. Okay. I know more about monkeys than you do. (laughs) Okay, now, so we we have a picture in our head of a... Old world monkey would be like a mandrill, for example. Mm-hmm. A new world monkey would be something um, like a spider monkey. So what features, like what's a, what's a feature that each each of those monkeys have that the other one doesn't, you think? Mandrills. 
have big noses. Have really that's big all I noses. Got. They do have big. They do. No, that's a good. That's a good answer. They have big noses, big teeth. Okay. Yeah. And absolutely. They don't do as much climbing. They and their tails butt. aren't prehensile. Very good. They all have right. Big butts. They do have Nicole, big butts. Also, though, no, those are terrific answers. Okay. So. <laughs> My answer was better. <laughs> so Rachel mentioned uh, New World monkeys. Yeah, tend to have prehensile tails um, that uh, obviously help them with moving through jungles and thickly forested areas that you're going to find where monkeys live in South America. Um, Nicole, you are correct that um, Old World monkeys um, have something going on with their butts. Um, you have your hand raised very high. Go ahead. Rachel's flipping me off. <laughs> That's okay. She's just getting in the spirit of this game. Okay. <laughs> wow. Um, the uh, yeah, and that uh, so they have old world monkeys. A lot of them have something called an ischial callosity, uh, which is a fancy way of saying like a butt pad. Okay, oh, so they nice. have like they have like ischial a rough coloscopy <laughs> callosity, like a callus, like a callus. Callosity. Yes. Not a colonoscopy. Uh, not a colonoscopy. No. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna stop doing vocab words here very soon. <laughs> okay. No, don't. Um, <laughs> I've already forgotten the word we just learned. Ischial callosities. Ischial callosities. Yeah. And it's it's a butt pad. It's a butt pad for sitting on you know like the ground. We have um, a butt pad. We have a butt pad. Yeah. Our gluteus maximus. Is that is that the same thing? <laughs> I think ours is more f- like a fatty butt pad. Yeah. yeah. Um. These animals have like an actual like rough patch of skin on their bums. Oh. Yes. Okay. And then, you know, we also think about like, yes, uh, a lot of them do get massive genital swellings, yeah. um, which we associate a lot with the, uh, with primates. Um, when we think of like, oh, wow, they have, you know, a massive like beach ball sized, uh, you know, but. swelling coming out of their rump. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's also kind of interesting <laughs> And this is, uh, we'll talk about this in a minute, but um, the uh, those genital swellings are so intense that they can actually increase the mass of some of these animals by like 15%. Are you kidding? <laughs> it's is wild, it f- right? Because it's filled with fluid that like gives it actual mass? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so and like, like, it's like they, um, yeah. So I don't <laughs> Nicole's know why just I shaking her like head at all of this. This is interesting to me. It's I don't, disgusting. So if you had a... <laughs> If you had an 80-pound monkey, okay, that means that that's like 13 pounds of extra genital that they're getting when they're (laughs) they're in estrus. Like, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's fascinating to me. Okay. um, Moving on. Uh, So, yes, you guys have a good differentiation between New World and Old World monkeys. Obviously, the New World monkeys live in South America, and uh, there are actually none of them that inhabit grasslands. And uh, among that whole hmm. that whole group, okay. um, the grassland dwelling monkeys are in the old world, and not a huge number of them actually show a specific affinity for grasslands. But the ones that do are very, very well adapted to grasslands. Um, Interesting. Yes. Also, are mandrels one of those? Um, mandrels are tend to be more. Um, uh, they they I think they use a number of different habitats, but mandrels tend to be more of a of a forest. Um, dwelling monkey. Mm. A forest um, or savanna? Well. <laughs> so so a lot of a lot of these a lot of these monkeys use what we'd call a mo- like a mosaic, right, mm-hmm. of habitats. Um they're mm-hmm. not necessarily confined to one. Um Okay. Yes. There is one thing I did want to say. Um and that's before we move on since you brought up spider monkeys because I looked this up. <laughs> <laughs> this is just more of a personal rant uh-huh. before we move on and we can put the trivia away. 
Donkey Kong. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. I'm ready. In the Donkey Kong video games, they are a family. Mm-hmm. They are related. Okay. Donkey Kong, very famously a gorilla. Okay. Uh-huh. His nephew, Diddy Kong, small, has a prehensile tail. Mm-hmm. He is in canon a spider monkey. Yeah. His this gorilla has a nephew that's a spider monkey, Dixie Kong, Diddy Kong's girlfriend, chimpanzee. Yeah. Maybe he's adopted. Yeah. Aww. That makes sense. Yeah. All right, moving on. <laughs> um, okay, so I would like to tell you a little bit today about a uh, a group of monkeys, um, one uh, genus of monkeys that are specifically like a, a savanna dwelling, right? We talked a lot about the African savanna uh, a few episodes ago, and so we're going to dive in a little bit deeper with um, some of the things that live there. Rachel is excited. Okay. Somebody has to bring some excitement here. (laughs) So there are a number of, uh, uh, in Africa, there's a number of ground-dwelling species that would call the best biome home. Some of these would include things like vervets. Anyone? Vervets? No idea. Sometimes they're called green monkeys. Do they have like little manes? Um, kind of, yeah. They've got like a, yeah, they have like a fuzzy kind of wreath. Uh, you know, their face is kind of surrounded by like a fuzzy, yeah. Yeah. disc um the uh you also got geladas which live up in the like the montane grasslands of ethiopia um you've got patas monkeys okay which are really long limbed really spindly uh <laughs> <laughs> the way nicole is like <laughs> retching as i'm describing what <laughs> what these monkeys look like um and uh uh patas monkeys very interesting um possibly uh, just as a side fact, possibly considered one of the inspirations for the Lorax based on their appearance and their their symbiosis with gum acacia trees. Um, oh. Yeah. And uh, uh, finally, we've got baboons, which is what I'm going to talk about today. We're going to talk mostly about baboons. What do you guys, do you guys know anything about baboons already? Um, I think everything that I once knew about baboons has been replaced by bonobos. And I'm now trying to conflate them in ways that I know are not true. Ooh, bonobos are, uh, that's another great animal. Yeah, um, they're very, very different. They're very they're chimpanzee-like. Very different, yes. Um, but uh, um, They're really aggressive. Bonobos? Or no, baboons? baboons. Baboons, yes. Baboons uh, tend to be very aggressive. Um, and uh, that's, um, that's an important uh, feature of their survival. Okay, um, if we think about... Uh, this is a primate that uses a variety of habitats, but primarily on the grassland. You're going to have um, some very different pressures working on you, right? If okay. you're on, if you are, uh, you know, trying to survive in a savanna environment, the pressures are different. So the behaviors and the the morphology uh, become different about these monkeys. There's a lot about uh, baboons that actually separates them from other non-human primates. Okay. Okay. So the main source for this episode is going to talk about baboons uh, and how some of the morphological, behavioral, social innovations that baboons show us uh, living on a grassland or in a, or in a more complicated, you know, mosaic of habitats in the African mm-hmm. savanna. This article is also going to connect this because this is this and this is the main reason I settled on baboons to talk about is going to connect this a little bit with some of our own evolutionary history. Okay. Uh, because obviously the African savanna, primates on the African savanna, 
that is where humans began, right? So like, uh, you know, we talk about our own, you know, our own ancestry as a species traces back to these, uh, these same grasslands, uh, these same kind of environments. So baboons are a good potential analog for talking about some of, you know, not, not like our immediate, uh, human ancestors for those like chimpanzees might be a better analog, but, um, some of the some of the older ones okay uh mm. going back to like australopithecus artipithecus that kind of era of yeah, human evolution is what we're or hominid evolution is what we're looking at okay this this is uh this comes from a paper published just a few months ago called baboon perspectives on the ecology and behavior of early human ancestors oh. uh this was written by glenn e king a phd out of monmouth university and uh yeah so we're going to get into uh and this is a person who is an anthropologist by training but has studied baboons extensively almost their entire career Okay. So published a lot about this. And this is kind of a literature review of how we can look at baboons and, and you know, their ecology on in a grassland environment for understanding how human, our human ancestors might have functioned in the same kind of environment. Oh, let's go. This is cool stuff. <laughs> okay. You still think it's disgusting, Nicole? I mean, it's not like I like humans that much either, so. <laughs> Nicole, you are a primate. I know. Okay. It's my, yeah. Is it your greatest flaw? It is. <laughs> It really is. Oh, I'm sorry. You, I'm sorry. You're not a rodent. All right. So let's think about um, why why use baboons in the first place. Like obviously, like I said, there are better analogs for understanding current humans, uh, you know, Homo sapiens, because our most closely related or, you know, relatives would be chimpanzees and bonobos. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those are they, they provide a better framework for understanding like how did we more recently evolve. Baboons would be a better anal- analogy for these human ancestors that would have popped up, you know, six to 12 million years ago. Okay. Does it have to do with like habitat use? It has to do, the habitat use is part of it, right? So that's that's one reason why that the, the framework makes sense or why the comparison makes sense is because both our early human ancestors and baboons use a huge variety of habitats, right? So they're not just confined to uh, grasslands or forests or, you know, riparian areas, they utilize all of it. And they, baboons are very widespread in Africa. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they, they have, uh, moved across a huge swaths of the continent. It also has to do with the way their bodies are. So both, uh, are very large bodied among primates. Baboons get pretty hefty in that range of, uh, of like 30 to 80 pounds, which is pretty big for a monkey. Um, okay. Yeah. Know. They also have uh, some really stark uh, sexual dimorphism. So you've got male baboons being almost twice as large as female baboons, um, which is not the case with a lot of other primates. Um, Obviously, it's not the case with humans. It's not the case with chimpanzees either. But it, uh, um, it would be the case with some of our earlier human ancestors. Australopithecus would have had a more stark sexual dimorphism, males much larger than the females. Okay. I don't think I knew that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't know that either until I read this paper. I would have assumed they were more, it was you know similar to humans, but right, yeah. um, nope, it's, it's quite a bit different. Another reason this framework makes sense is because baboons are not exclusively a terrestrial species. They do also use the trees. Okay. Which is, you know, what our earliest human ancestors, early hominids would have done as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So kind of splitting your time between being in the trees and being a, a fully ground-based species. Those reasons are why this, this framework makes a lot of sense, uh, why we can draw these comparisons. So let, let's dive into the world of baboons and understand a little bit more about their, 
morphology, their ecology, and the way they organize. Um, so, sorry, I just was picturing labor movements or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It it is the probably the earliest precursor to the labor movement is the way primates <laughs> incredible <laughs> collectively organize. Um, okay, so baboons more so than many other primates, are very strongly affiliated with this savanna uh, habitat, with the savanna environment. Um, so much so that four of the six species of baboons are just often collectively called the savanna baboon. What? Wow. The, yeah, okay. the yellow, the guinea, the chakma, and the olive baboons are collectively just known as savanna baboons. Holy cow. Also, Nicole and I just had a moment where we locked eyes in deep confusion as we realized that there's not just one baboon species. <laughs> yeah. There is not. Yeah. There, uh, with, with some of these, like, with some of these uh, genus uh, or genera of uh, monkeys, there is only, like, one species. They're, like, monotypic, right? Mm-hmm. So um, gelatas are in their own little genus. Mandrels are in their own genus. Um, but there are six different kinds of baboon. Um, and, uh, you know, but even that is kind of a little bit muddied because you have these six species of baboons that live in different geographic areas of sub-Saharan Africa, but they are, they all have like these kind of zones of hybridization where their ranges overlap, which oh. you know <laughs> makes, makes it very confusing when you're trying to like pick out which species is which, yeah. um, you know, so some of them are very different though. Like the Hamadryas baboon lives in more of like a montane environment. They're like more cl- cliff dwelling, um, than, uh, than Savannah dwelling. So, you know, there's there's somewhere we can be like, you know, oh, yeah, that's a very different situation. Their uh, society is also very different than the other baboon species. So but for some of them, it's a little more, you know, it's a little muddier. So they're just kind of generally termed as savanna baboons. Baboons are largely ground dwelling during the day. They will sleep in trees. Okay, they will use trees as a refuge, as an escape. But during the day, they are mostly foraging on the ground. Uh, And uh, for that reason, they're morphologically much better adapted than a lot of other primates for using the ground, uh, for using a terrestrial environment. Okay. They have uh, longer forelimbs than than hind limbs. Those hind limbs and primates are usually used for like suspending themselves in trees. Okay. And for, and for climbing trees quickly, um, you know, it's very helpful to have really powerful grabby feet on your, (laughs) on your back legs to help scoot up a tree. Right. Baboons don't uh, rely on that as heavily. They uh, use those longer forelimbs to kind of, uh, you know, for bounding across a more open environment. Okay. What's kind of interesting here is that they are also, uh, you know, I told you there's a lot of ways in which baboons differ from most of their non-human primates. Baboons are also one of the most omnivorous of all primate species. Okay. Um, so, you know, we they're using a variety of habitats. They also have a variety of pressures on them. So they have seemed to have evolved to have a really broad diet. And this is something that's interesting about them. Being a grassland species is the degree to which grass is a part of their diet. Really? Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you, you know, we don't typically think of, you know, you, well, you, and if you look at a baboon, <laughs> right, you look at their teeth, massive canine teeth, yeah. huge jaws. Um, they don't really seem like something that would be grazing on grass quite a bit, um, but it's, uh, the extent to which they do is is fascinating. 
it can be the single most important food source. Those C4 grasses on a savanna can be the single most important food source for some species of baboons. Oh, um, it may wow. make up, depending on seasonality, anywhere from 40 to 90% of their diet. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. It's, 90%. Right? Yeah. That's that's really kind of shocking. Um, yeah. You know, they to consider like how much actual actual grazing that they're doing. They're also like a really big uh, generalist species, right? So, you know, they're really good at exploiting this uh, this very diverse habitat that they're in. One study that looked at the diets of yellow baboons found that, hang on, I want to make sure I get this right, because this is, this is pretty, this is, this is interesting. It may be interesting to you as well. Um, okay, so of the 25 most common tree genera, all of those were used for food by baboons. Of the 50 most common grass, shrub, and herb species, 93% of them were used. And they were eating anywhere from one to six different parts of plants from more than 180 species of plant. So baboons have a really broad diet. They're not just eating the leaves of grass, the seeds of grass. They're also utilizing the stems. They're also digging up rhizomes and eating, feeding on those. In addition to all the other things they're eating, like fruits, uh, invertebrates. Um, they even have been known to fish. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, baboons have been uh, observed eating both dead fish, diving to find fish, and uh, fishing by slapping the surface of water to stun <laughs> fish. Uh, so they, you know, that's a part of their diet as well. And uh, they'll even eat um, some other smaller vertebrate prey that they can get a hold of. Oh my god, that's really cool! Diving after fish. They, yeah, that's an incredible the amount of generalism that they're mm-hmm. showing there. See Nicole, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah. We're not so going to win Nicole over. It's yeah, okay, Rachel. Yeah, we'll give up. But, you know, we're we're going to talk about this anyway. Um, <laughs> Open your mouth. Here comes the airplane. Oh, my God. It's more oh, my fix. <laughs> um, so, th- you know, that kind of... That kind of efficiency in using your environment and, and taking in a number of, you know sources of proteins okay um may have helped kind of shape a little bit the uh the evolution of early hominids as well because they would have had to right you're moving into a uh an environment with some more intense seasonality um greater exposure to the elements it's an open environment where you're gonna have to travel a lot farther to find resources sometimes uh so that that kind of informs us a little bit about what the diet of early hominids may have been like as well would have had to have really broadened their horizons to find the most profitable sources of food since they're not just, you know, chilling back in the in the forest and, you know, using what's there. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. This yeah. is just uh, more of a poll to make sure we're on the same page here. But when mm-hmm. we describe animals as being more omnivorous, in my mind, that means that they're eating like a pretty equal proportion of meat and vegetable material. Does that feel accurate? Well, um, yeah, it, 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 again, it, and it depends. So like they, um, I think, I think when I'm saying more omnivorous in this, in this context, I think I'm using like most generalist or most opportunistic. Okay. Uh, You know, like, uh, it, not in terms of a balance of overall diet, but in terms of the sheer variety of food sources that they will 
utilize. Yeah. I, I like the comparison to opportunist. That's, mm-hmm. yeah. For sure, yeah. Like if they had access in a certain time of year to a lot of dead fish, they would just eat all of that. And exactly. If they had grasses, then chomp chomp. Even a deer will eat a bird. That's yes. true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you think a, a bird would definitely eat a deer? Uh, yeah, some birds do eat deer, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> Don't try to make this about birds. Yeah. You, you started it, Alan. <laughs> You're right. Okay, that's my fault. Um, okay. Talking about, uh, obviously, you know, the way they utilize their environment is one thing. Um the way they interact with uh, potential threats in that environment is another, okay? So when we're talking about their predators, um, what do you think is the biggest or most common predator of the baboon? Humans. Silverback gorillas. (laughs) (laughs) What? You guys came came (laughs) roaring out of those two answers. Um, Um, Other bigger baboons. Humans are, okay. (laughs) (laughs) These are good answers. Big big mean primates. You, you, You said those were good answers like they weren't the right ones so no, those are good going. answers those are good answers so <laughs> Lions. uh humans humans do uh uh, uh hunt baboons giraffes. okay um <laughs> giraffes not so much i don't think um sometimes there are conflicts between species of baboons okay uh-huh. and according to one study that studied both collared baboons and uh collared vervets and collared leopards the leopards were like by far the most common thing that was going after baboons Yes. Were those, uh, is collared the species name or did they have collars on? <laughs> yeah. okay. No, nope. a good, a good point of clarification. No, these were just leopards that had collars on. Okay, cool. Yes. Just checking. Much like Donkey Kong wears a tie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, collared baboon. Sure, I, that makes that makes sense. Does, yeah, okay. and then you kept going. I was like, oh wait, no, 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 no. That's a good. That's a good point. No, no, no. That is not one of the species of baboon. Okay, okay. darn. Um, sorry. Oh, well, that that's the deal breaker. Yeah, that okay. would have made it for me. <laughs> Don't lie. Keep going, Alan. Okay, leopards are the most common predator of baboons. Um, they uh, tend to strike at baboons um, in the nighttime. Uh, because baboons are unfortunately a little bit too heavy to like sleep way out on the flexible parts of branches no. where a leopard might have trouble getting to them. Because, you know, leopard starts to go out a little bit. The branch starts to get a little too thin, a little too light. Mm-hmm. Then it's like, uh-oh, mm-hmm. problems for the leopard. Um, other smaller monkeys are able to do that. So they're less vulnerable at night, more vulnerable during the day. Mm-hmm. Baboons uh, in contrast, much less vulnerable during the day because they are so aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can find all sorts of fascinating nature doc footage on on YouTube of baboons like chasing away lions, uh, mm. which are they're much smaller than. But in terms of like the sheer numbers that they have, mm. um, all of them yelling sort of like vocalizing, uh, coordinating to like scare off a, a large predator. Um, it's pretty fascinating. So they, they, um, they'll go nice. out of their way to attack predators and counter like preemptively to avoid, you know, getting attacked. That's during the day. Okay. Do they ever, uh, when they get attacked in their sleep, do they ever wake up with such ferocity that they just murder the offending leopard or? <laughs> um, I don't know. That's a great question. I would, uh, so, um, <laughs> I'm just wondering. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was, like, there are, uh, like, again, some baboons get up to like 80 pounds, right? Which is mm-hmm. big. And they're very angry and very toothy. 
uh, like their incisors are like, you know, a few inches long. So mm-hmm. I'd imagine if a, you know, if a baboon was fighting for its life, it could probably wound uh, any number of, you know, mid-sized predators. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. Don't wake up a sleeping baboon <laughs> okay. would be my suggestion to you. Yeah. You heard it, listeners, here first. <laughs> it's a PSA. <laughs> Um, baboons are also, um, uh, there's some interesting studies that have been, uh, um, looked into how baboons, um, manage predators, uh, in the water as well. Um, looking at, uh, crocodile as a, a okay. predator. Um, okay, yeah. Crocodile. So, I was like, what, yeah. what water predators could the, they possibly be well, running right. into? <laughs> so yeah. a lot of them, uh, a lot of them do exist near water and bodies of water, uh, in their habitats. They are extremely vigilant when crossing water, according to the paper, and they have uh, a whole pattern of alarm calls and responses that they use. Uh, they're extremely like hyper aware of what's going on uh, in their groups to make sure that none of them are, um, you know, exposed to a potential crocodile threat. Um, they also have a specific crocodile bark that indicates when it's time to dash into a tree. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Similarly, non-human ancestors would have, or, you know, early hominins would have also dealt with these kinds of predators as well. Uh, they would have dealt with, you know, sort of ancestral earlier, you know, species of cats, as well as hyenas, lions, things like that. So yes, they would have also needed to probably have a similar sort of vigilance or even, um, you know, there, there's there's uh, anthropological evidence that crocodiles would occasionally feed on them, so they would have needed to develop uh, this similar sort of um, hyper vigilant or coordinated um, system of defense. You know, okay. a communal a communal sort of defense from these kinds of threats, uh, because you are much more exposed in a grassland environment. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, moving on to um, the t- the next two things we're going to talk about, which are, are are probably the most interesting aspects of of primate biology which are is the social aspect and the cognitive aspect right these are these are what fascinate me personally about primates um and so we're gonna we're gonna dig into a little bit about of their social organization perfect nicole Um, also really likes this topic so maybe we can (laughs) finally get her to have some level of appreciation for these animals yeah hopefully okay um what would you how many uh how many baboons would you expect to find in a in a group how like what what's size group do you think they exist in 15 30 uh you're you're close to the low end there so yeah uh most baboon species <laughs> would uh would formulate groups of anywhere from 20 to 50 individuals okay um a group of baboons is called a troop nice and troops of baboons uh can actually vary anywhere from one to 200 oh. in size so these are this is a large community of animals uh that we're talking about What's interesting about uh, groups of baboons is that they will organize hierarchically. So they have you have the large troop, and then nested within that, you have smaller groups that interact and split off, and then smaller groups within those. Okay. Um, and the, it's kind of funny because the terms are a little bit different uh, from species to species. I don't know why this is the case, uh, but you know, if you're someone who studies like guinea baboons, for example the hierarchy would at the lowest level well you'd have the individual okay then you'd have the reproductive unit which is a, typically a one male unit and then oh. any females that are associated with that male then you would have the party 
<laughs> which okay. is multiple one male units. Then you'd have the gang. <laughs> and then you'd finally have the troop as the highest level. Okay. Why are they why do they use these terms? I don't know, like, but you know, it 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 makes sense to like sort of differentiate because these groups will again they'll split off and they'll come together when they need to. They might split off if resources are low and they have to forage separately, mm-hmm. but they might come together for things like again community defense yeah. and stuff like that. How much space is a troop of baboons occupying? Like that seems like an extraordinary number of these like big grazing animals wandering around. Like how far away do they roam from each other? Like do they have a territory that they're occupying or are they nomadic? Like how how much space do they take up? <laughs> yeah. Um in in terms of like physical space, uh that could vary pretty greatly. Um I found one study that was looking at like you know, what they call the day path of mm-hmm. a baboon or a baboon group um and how far they travel um i don't remember the specific numbers there but they can uh, especially when they're in a grassland environment and if you know if resources are low then they end up spreading out quite a bit they travel very uh very far in uh, in certain circumstances uh, throughout a day but yeah i don't know there's all sorts of large herds of animals though in a savannah you know right it's not yeah. just you know it's like yeah 200 baboons seems like a lot but you've also you've got so many other animals that are also forming very large groups mm-hmm. for similar reasons um you yeah know. and i'm sure they're all overlapping and living in the same spaces obviously mm-hmm. yeah they, they are kind of free-ranging they will migrate a little bit but they do kind of gravitate sometimes towards a territory with like a good feeding ground and a good sleeping ground okay um but also like it also depends on it's a little bit gender-based too because males of a troop of baboons they'll move from troop to troop right oh, okay um the, you know it's the the males are expected to like once they you know start reaching that uh like a level of maturity that they get kicked out and they mm-hmm. kind of have to go and wander and find another do they group. age in the grasslands? Do they age in the grasslands? For, yeah, for then, a dozen years and then uh-huh. return <laughs> yes. as really grizzled, like mm-hmm. just Clint Eastwood types. Yes, Clint Eastwood type <laughs> baboons. Yes. Wait, how long do baboons live? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, on average, apparently 20 to 40. Okay. okay. Uh, which is pretty good considering the crazy <laughs> number of predators yeah, that, yeah. They, that exist on the savannah. Um, but yeah, that's pretty solid. Um, and I think that speaks to how well, you know, they defend themselves within these social groups. Yeah. yeah. How often do the babies die? So <laughs> that's that, a good question. Shut up. Like, like, what, what's their, their infant mortality? Yeah. Um, yeah. So they're, uh, I mean, the infant mortality is going to be a lot higher than the adult mortality. Right. Uh, in general, but also there is a lot of infanticide sometimes with oh, uh, baboons. Okay. Um, you know, if you have a lower status male that is trying to butt his way into, uh, you know, one of the females and one of these other, uh, one male groups that might result in that, that offspring getting killed by the dominant male in that, Mm -hmm. in that group. Interesting. Okay. I forgot the, (laughs) that aspect. There's a lot of, yeah, there's the male, male competition among baboons can be very intense. That, that's a, that's a key, a key issue with, uh, how their societies organize again, depending on the species, but there can be some very intense, very violent confrontations among male baboons, um, competing for access to females. Okay. Um, interestingly though, that also varies a little bit. There are some species where like that are more con, uh, more conflict averse, right? Oh, okay. 
like the kinda baboon, which is the smallest. They don't really have like uh, violent confrontations with other males. Um, they're more invested in the male female relationships that they do have, and they kind of get along with other males, uh, you know, a, a lot better. Um, Interesting. And some species also like the older males get, the more likely they are to be cooperative, okay. um, because they will start viewing the younger males as more of a threat and realizing that they have to work together to <laughs> depend what they have. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting the way that those social dynamics play out over the course of these baboons lives. Um, but that's, that's a key thing that you bring up there. Do you think that could tell us something about the origin of the good old boys club? <laughs> you know, it really might. Uh, and there's, you know, so you've got, <laughs> Um, I'm very proud of myself for that one. Very good job, Rachel. She literally just pat herself on the back. <laughs> I need everyone to know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you've got with you know, it's good that you bring that up because there is you know a lot of a lot that you know we could potentially ex- extrapolate from baboons living in these multi-level uh, societies with like this intense level of social distinction and you know intense um, competition and things like that mm-hmm. that could tell us about what might have early hominid societies been like as well. The anthropological evidence suggests that early hominids also would have banded together in groups of 20 to 50 individuals, depending. So very similar to a baboon there. And that they would have um, had a, uh, yeah, a similar... A similar situation uh, going on with some of their their interactions. So um, it's kind of postulated that, um, you know, they, they might have lived in either... Or they might have shifted at some point from being in these like multi-male, multi-female groups that were more promiscuous to having more of like a harem kind of structure where one male is kind of associated with multiple females mm-hmm. and um, and the females that are associated with that female since the males get kicked out. Right. Or killed. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, there's one um, one anthropologist cited in the paper um, named Bernard Chappé, who suggested that that kind of uh, harem organization in early hominids may have also given way to the multifamily community, which is kind of the, you know, the mode that humans organize in. Right. Yeah. Another interesting side note on that, since we were talking about male male competition uh, this anthropologist also suggested that uh, humans may have started switching from being in more of a harem situation to monogamy uh, when male-male competition was made more dangerous by the invention of weapons. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, when you're just like, well, I guess when you're just like throwing hands, it's a different story. But once you have like axes and, you know, knives and stuff, that's like, okay, yeah, we don't need to fight about on. this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is way more dangerous. <laughs> right. The stakes are much higher now. Um, oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, anthropology is interesting. That's so interesting. Can you speak to any of the anthropological evidence that you're mentioning about like you know how we know the group sizes were so large and how there was like a harem sort of organization for sure what does that look like like what does the evidence look like so to answer that question if looking at one of the papers that was specifically looking at how they're evaluating the social organization or Mm -hmm. the and the 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 group sizes uh of early hominids um they're drawing that information from quote, theoretical implications of ethnographic and primatological studies. 
Okay, so that would be like using using Guesses. modern analogs. Yeah, okay. Guesses. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> using modern analogs is a framework for analysis. Uh-huh. Okay. Why not bonobos? Um, yeah. How do we know for sure? Studies in biological anthropology and population structure. Uh, paleoanthropological data related primarily to skeletal aspects. So actually looking at fossils. Um, and archaeological data, so not just the human fossils, but like uh, evidence of settlements, evidence of shelter, mm-hmm. um, you know, burial okay. sites, things like that. Um, okay. There's also um, a another venue that they utilize within this paper, anyway, is something called the social brain hypothesis that looks at what might have been the um, the architecture and the size of the brains of these early hominids Mm. and kind of correlating that with you know primates of similar brain size and you know structure how would they react in these situations how would they behave um so it really does you know with with a lot of paleontology you do have to rely on modern analogs to, to to help to illuminate some of it um so yeah that that that's where some of this information comes from and that's you know that's really kind of what the point of this paper is uh, yeah. at, at, at the core of it. Okay, cool. Okay, um, so there, there's a lot of uh, uh, really strong female relationships with not only other females, but with other males that kind of contribute to the stability of these baboon uh, troops. The, the female uh, social connections tend to be a, a main driver of like survivorship of the young in these uh, in these groups okay um and uh That's interesting yeah. actually yeah there's there's an interesting like hierarchy of females where like you'll have a dominant female and then you know her female offspring you know will be like ranked right underneath her okay. and like in in order of most recent like most recent female offspring is like the dominant female beneath her so like there's there's a there's an interesting hierarchy there and this is like um kind of a this is an aspect of their cognition that i find really interesting which is that they have this capacity for making these social distinctions yeah so they did some uh like playback studies um where they would you know play certain calls towards certain baboons that were like a varying kind of like social uh status Mm -hmm. within a troop and it would elicit very different reactions like if you're getting yelled at by a like higher status baboon uh where you're lower status then they are kind of like there's going to be a lot more aggression there it's it's just interesting the way that they uh, distinguish each other socially and seem to recognize their own value and their the value of the other baboons in terms of this social hierarchy um, which is, again, you know, may have been sort of a precursor to this, you know, human tendency of, you know, comparing yourself to others and, <laughs> you know, that and, and making these, uh, you know, sort of distinctions. You said that the female relationships or the, the strength of female bonds tends to be a better predictor of survivability of the offspring. Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. I think that's really interesting in particular because I think there's this idea that in species where the males are really aggressive, that that's a trait that's directly related to the survival of the offspring, that they're like protectors and that sort of a thing. And so I find it interesting that rather than any male behavior, it's the female relationships in this case that are a better predictor of how well the infants do. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah. Maybe it's because the male aggression also kills the babies. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Ma- males yeah. are just there to like fight other males and like right. cause a ruckus. And ladies are like, calm down, everyone. Like, it's okay. <laughs> yes. Is but- it okay to anthropomorphize animals that we are directly relating ourselves to? <laughs> uh, in this case, maybe in some ways. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that you know, that's, I think that's part of the point, right? right. It's yeah. like there, you know, there is. There is a time where anthropomorphization um, doesn't make sense, but there is also, you know, times when anthropomorphization um, can be a useful tool for understanding something about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something like, you know, I went to I went to hear Jane Goodall speak once, and that was something that she was really big on, which was that like, you know, spending having spent so much of her life with chimpanzees, studying chimpanzees, it's like at a certain point it doesn't make sense to not compare them in some ways to yourself because mm-hmm. they are it is like a difference of degree it's not a difference of kind is something yeah. that she's uh that she said so it kind of reminds me of uh hyena social structure a little bit like just like the strong female bonds and like uh the female her offspring being like directly underneath her a lot of times and yeah for sure yeah i mean i i think that is I think that's an aspect of mammal ecology um, that, yeah, you have to understand like males so often in many, in many mammal species are essentially hyper competitive sperm donors. Like they yeah. don't actually mm-hmm. contribute a lot to it, it varies. It varies quite a bit, but like they don't necessarily invest a lot in the rearing of young or mm-hmm. in the protection of offspring um, they don't actually contribute a lot to the stability of the population. They just are often fighting with other males and trying to mate. And mm-hmm. like that, that's like, you know, that's kind of an interesting aspect of, 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 of mammal ecology in general. Um, from the paper specifically, it, what it says is, quote, females with the strongest social bonds to other adult females have the highest survivorship among both daughters and sons. Um, hmm. The males, obviously, Male offspring is much more at risk within a uh, within a family unit or within a troop um, because of the potential um, uh, 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 potential competition a- aspect and also the fact that males um, tend to leave a family unit mm-hmm. um, at mm-hmm. some point. Uh, the benefits persist into offspring adulthood. Uh, are unrelated to female dominance rank and increase quantitatively with the strength of female-female bonds. So that is really a foundational thing for the stability of the troop. That's really cool. It is cool. All right. So uh, we talked a little bit about their social cognition. How do they recognize uh, one another's value and why do they have that ability? Um, There's also, with baboons... um, some limited, uh, some limited observations of tool use, um, not to the extent that they've been observed uh, in chimpanzees. Certainly, um, I know it's debated. Like, are chimpanzees in the Stone Age now? Like, um, you know, it's <laughs> like based on their their tool use. Uh-huh. Um, but like um, uh, with baboons, there are among primates, they have a a pretty high degree of cognition in terms of exploring and solving novel tasks so like studies that have like tried to compare you know apples to apples like okay how does a you know a macaque and a rhesus monkey compare on these two tasks Uh, baboons tend to 
be a lot more successful uh, with in terms of these cognitive measures. I wonder if that's because they're such generalists that they are constantly experiencing new things and figuring out ways to use them, or they're just like, I don't know, it seems like they, they will use anything around them that can be used, right? So maybe mm-hmm. they're just re- really willing to try over the evolutionary history of their species. Well, I think so, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think the in terms of learning um, it is uh, something that baboons have a, a pretty high capacity for. Um which is something I'll talk about a little bit more in just a second, but just to, before uh, we move on from tool use in terms of what has been observed, uh, baboons are, um, have been seen like very selectively picking rocks that they want to flip to find food (laughs) based on the size, the angle, uh, of the rock to a downward slope, what might be easiest to move and that sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and also primatologists have directly observed baboons throwing rocks at them. So, <laughs> which is kind of, you know, uh, like, were they okay? <laughs> they were fine. Yeah, okay, they were good, fine. Good, but good. Uh, uh, yeah, they like. I've heard that I, can be dangerous. I don't. I don't. Humans know. have done that to each other too. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what those what they were there to study in the first place. But then baboons started throwing rocks at them, and they were probably like, "Fascinating." Like, Let's write this down. This is cool. Yes, yes. Um, uh, I love scientists. <laughs> Wait. Yes. Are chimpanzees in the Stone Age? <laughs> I don't know. That's a question for another time. That's oh, okay, okay. Sorry. <laughs> but, you did just kind of throw that out there. Like, yeah, I couldn't get out of my head. I had you know, to scratch it. I, I, I mean, yeah, chimpanzees uh, and bonobos are fascinating animals, and I would love to tell you all about them another time, um, but not in this podcast. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you talked about uh, their ability to learn um, and, you know, having all these kind of new experiences that they're having to constantly process by using so many different habitats and using uh, and traveling so much. Um, That was an interesting thing about language. Okay. Mm. Uh, In terms of the the social learning aspect there, Um, there is an argument or there's interest in using baboon vocalizations to study the most foundational kind of beginnings of human language. Okay. Because baboons have the necessary brain architecture, they have the necessary anatomy to have this variety of vocalizations with different meanings, right? So um, they might kind of have the some of the building blocks of language there. And what's interesting is that um, the there's really complex vocalizations that might uh, you know, a lot, a lot like prairie dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the need to to mention that. Uh, you know, Thank be, you. because there is, um, you know, they they do they all these what sound like grunts and hoots and mm-hmm. calls and things do indicate very different things to the baboons. They contain um, information of some kind. They contain kind. information exactly. So there is there is a lot more meaning than we are able to extract from just hearing them the way they hit our ear. Uh, you know they're able to extract a lot more meaning from those. But interestingly, when new males join a different gang <laughs> or party, <laughs> uh, you know, um, or when you have like this sort of migration between groups, um, the vocalizations change. Okay. So oh. like they sort of end up with this like vocal, like this, uh, uh, what the paper calls vocal convergence, which is basically like, all these baboons hang out together. They have these intensive social interactions. They're learning from one another. Their vocalizations then begin to get a lot more similar. So you mean when a, do you mean when a new 
individual arrives to a troop that they are adapting that troops like slang or, or something, yeah. or is it like going both ways? Um, I think it does go both ways. I think, you know, you have, you, you have these, uh, yeah, you have other baboons um, coming in and out of a certain group and then their, their vocalizations converge to all kind of the same thing. So there, they are, there's an exchange, uh, you know, an exchange of information there, um, which is, which is, yeah, it's kind of interesting. So, I mean, like then that's, that is also telling, of the way that human language works too right like um you know we take things we we draw things from uh you know our interactions with other groups of people Mm -hmm. and that you know that that may have been sort of a foundational thing for for you know our languages as well um and it's Mm -hmm. telling about how maybe the early hominids would have communicated too um it's just it's just interesting you know to use this as kind of a a lens with which to view the way that these certain things evolved. Something really complicated like language would have just maybe started with, you know, these these information laden laden vocalizations uh, that were different among different groups of hominids. Mm-hmm. And then the more they got together, the more it refined and mm-hmm. you know converged into something uh, universal. So that's cool. It is interesting. Um, lastly. Uh, the um the bipedal walking okay Ooh, that is oh. that is just another uh that's another thing Wait, with, <laughs> yeah do, right this is this so this is a pretty a pretty important thing obviously early hominins uh you know where when did they develop bipedalism mm-hmm. um and and why um baboons kind of uh, also maybe give us a little bit of a a, a light on that because um, infant baboons will spontaneously walk upright in the early phase of their life while they're also learning how to coordinate their limbs to walk on all fours. So they will do both, which uh, suggests that like the neural pathways to do either are there in baboons. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and have probably been there in other primates as well. Uh, And so if baboons had a different set of pressures acting on them, then they might have evolved a little bit differently in terms of the way they move as early hominids did mm. because the yeah there's a similar uh architecture in some of these uh, ancestral primates for f- to do either it seems like yeah, that's cool. because as adults they are primarily not by people correct I yeah but as babies sure. they'll walk upright spontaneously yeah which is interesting do yeah. they ever do that as adults um, I, I, they will, they just don't move as efficiently, uh, when they're fully grown. I don't think, um, like you can, yeah, like they'll stand up. Sure. Uh, but in terms of like using it as their primary form of locomotion, um, like the primary movement, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't really seem like it makes as much sense, but okay. it's, yeah, it's, it's something that is primarily observed on their babies, which that's I cool. think is interesting. So, yeah. That's yeah. really interesting. Okay. So what does all this mean? Baboons, like early hominid species, are very well adapted to function in the you know the environment that the African savanna offers. They have so many challenges to face uh, in this very complex environment, this mosaic of environments. But they are um, just really well built for all of these potential struggles. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, when I saw this paper, that's what really interested me because. Grasslands uh, and the African savanna in particular play a significant role in the evolution of human species. Mm-hmm. You know, it is part of our story mm-hmm. and not just the, you know, to look at these, uh, to look at baboons and see what that tells us 
about not only other non-human primates, but also uh, our own ancestors is is uh, is an interesting subject. And it's um, yeah, I mean, I know we don't, you know, we're uh, we talk a lot about wildlife. We don't really talk too much about anthropology on this podcast, but it is just something that I think is a it's it's a it's a fascinating area to see where the two overlap. And um, yeah, yeah, I think it's good to go back to our roots. And uh, I don't know. I mean, there's like a lot of hypotheses even now of like why humans find park style environments so appealing, and it all goes back to this like ancient. Mm-hmm very ancient <laughs> relationship with savannas that yeah hominids have had so for sure yeah i mean there's right that yeah there's something it, it is it is interesting to think about yeah how how much of our own social inclinations and and our own habits and that sort of a thing are derived traits essentially from you know yeah. uh, these these more ancestral ancestral human species yeah um, you know what what does what does that leave us with you know it is interesting yeah but also baboons are just really cool <laughs> they are they're um, cool. they, you know in terms of primates that fully live on savannas like and do it really well mm-hmm. um yeah it's just it's it's kind of cool like there's you know and uh being a true grasslands primate it's yeah it's it's a fun subject i think yeah, yeah. absolutely mm-hmm. Also, we talk all the time about how humans are impacting environments. It's nice for a change to think about how an environment impacted us. <laughs> yeah, right? That's true. And impacts baboons. Yeah. To this day. We can't eat as much grass as they can. Yeah. Do they have like a gut thing going on like cows? Do they like cows? So I <laughs> I, I really so I really wanted to look into that cuz like yeah, like humans obviously are cecum yeah, is, is vestigial. Yeah, it's very like shrunk down and like we've got a crappy yeah, little yeah, appendix yeah. that serves no purpose <laughs> to give us pro- problems, right? Yeah. But like I think in other primates, that's much larger mm-hmm. because they have a much more rough and unpalatable. <laughs> well, I won't say unpalatable. Maybe the baboons think it's delicious. Less but, like, palatable. <laughs> less palatable, you know, rougher, a rougher diet. Yeah. Um, I would think they'd have to have some stomach adaptations that allow them to deal with that because that's a, yeah. breaking down all that cellulose. Like yeah. if that's 90% of your diet, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I didn't get into that aspect of their anatomy, <laughs> okay, but it, it okay. has to be, it has to be the case. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Do baby baboons eat their mother's poop so that they can <laughs> better break down cellulose? <laughs> uh, that's gross. And that's, uh, what are they, rabbits? Mm, a lot of animals do it. No, I know. I actually don't know about, uh, I didn't look into like fecal pap or anything like that with baboons. <laughs> okay. Um, well, why not? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> These are the questions we want to know. <laughs> <laughs> that's the question you want to know. No, I don't, I don't have a, uh, yeah, I mean, there's uh yeah i I didn't want to do just like a mm-hmm. a species profile on baboons i wanted to look at it from a yeah. more specific angle so i like that um but yeah can we end this episode by getting nicole's like final thoughts on baboons i think that would be a great idea uh nicole does any of this information move you in any way Thanks for listening. The best biome. <laughs> uh, okay, that was a funny g- gag. Um, 
you don't have to give an earnest answer if you don't want to <laughs> read the outro. No, no. Uh, instead of an earnest answer, give us a snarky answer. I mean, I thought that was pretty snarky. Yeah, just, just reading the outro snarky. instead of answering, I thought that was pretty good. Um, no, I mean, they're cool. Uh, I still, I mean, I just, I don't know. I just don't like primates. I don't know why. I can't. Is it Uncanny ex- Valley related or? I mean, but like baboons don't look like people. No, but you know what I mean, where it's like sometimes it's a little bit too similar, and that's like what wigs you out. Yeah. You did say the... you hated marmoset hands. <laughs> Why are you looking at me like that? That's what you said. I mean, I've said I hate a lot of primate hands, but I don't know that I specifically said I hated marmoset hands. Have you ever looked at a ring-tailed lemur's hands? No, I don't want when to. They're like, <laughs> like when they're like, when they're like on the ground, they have like their hands, they look like little tarantulas. It's cool. Wow. Oh, All God. Right. Um... Yeah, I don't know what it is. They're just not that interesting. Yeah, Maybe fair. it's just because everybody else likes them. And so Oof. it makes me not like them. Oh my god. You're like an edge lord at heart and you just have to like Only all the about cool primates. Things. Yeah. I'm sending you <laughs> Don't send me monkey pictures. <laughs> everybody tweet the whole monkey yeah. pictures. <laughs> she runs our Twitter, so it'll go right to her inbox. <laughs> yeah. Get get uh find the comments and go ahead and send Nicole. I'll block all of you. No! <laughs> from our so professional Twitter. Yeah, this is your fault. You're not in charge of our Twitter account anymore. I sent you a very grouchy looking Hamadryas baboon that's going to stare through your soul. Thanks for listening. The Best Biome is produced through our nonprofit Grass and Groupies, dedicated to inspiring the conservation of grasslands. In the show notes, you can find our website, phone number, and social media accounts. Text, call, or tweet your suggestions. Fan mail or hate mail. We got our first hate mail. I, I meant to say that oh, last yeah, time. That was pretty exciting. It was really fun. She thought we were in league with millionaires and yeah. that we were like a front for like George Soros or something. It was yeah. really fascinating. And that we were buying up grasslands to destroy them. And I'm like, that's the opposite of what we're trying to do and also we don't have that much money so so shout out to you jennifer i wish we had that amount of power (laughs) i will say to any millionaires listening though if you are interested in buying grasslands up and restoring them give us a call (laughs) if you enjoyed the show and want to support us tell your friends about us uh, or leave us a review we couldn't do this without your support and we'll see you again in two weeks thank you (laughs) Bye.